In the 5th century, on the island of Crete, there was a man who called himself Moses of Crete. And he named himself the Messiah. This is a true story. And he promised that he was going to part the Mediterranean Sea to prove his messiahship. And so his followers cast themselves into the sea just as he said that he would part it and nothing moved in the sea. He said he was going to part the Mediterranean Sea and his followers will walk through the sea to the land of Israel. Well, nothing happened and many of his followers died. Moses of Crete barely escaped with his life. True story. There's Anne Lee. Anne Lee was a central figure. You've heard of the Shaker movement. They're still active today. In 1772, she claimed this. Now listen to this. She claimed that she embodied all the perfections of God in female form. And that she was the counterpart, the female counterpart of Jesus Christ. She's claiming to be the Messiah, the chosen one. And then you've got more recently, and if you are an avid golfer, if you are a follower of sports, then maybe you remember in 1996, Sports Illustrated did an interview with Earl Woods. Earl Woods is the father of Tiger Woods, which I'm sure all of us have heard of. Here's, an, here's what he said. Here's what Earl Woods said about his son Tiger. Quote, Tiger will do more than any other man in history to change the course of humanity. He's qualified through his ethnicity to accomplish miracles. He's the bridge between the East and the West. I don't know yet exactly what form this will take, but he is the chosen one. He'll have the power to impact nations, not people, nations. The world is just getting a taste of his power. That's what Earl Woods said of Tiger Woods, and in another interview claimed that he was the Messiah. Now listen, there have been hundreds, maybe even thousands of men, and now we see women who have claimed to be the Messiah. All through human history, people have risen up in a lust for power and influence and said, I am the chosen one, I am the Messiah. But there's only been one. He's already come. He will come again. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Come on, you got to do better than that. Thank you, Dom. Thanks for sending. We need some more Italians. I want to invite you this morning with me on a walk to Jerusalem on now what is called Palm Sunday. This is just days before Jesus is going to offer his life as a sacrifice for sins. This is Sunday. The following day on Monday, he will go back into Jerusalem. He will clear out the temple for the second time. But I want to walk with you. We want to follow Jesus on Palm Sunday as he moves through Bethphage, Bethany, into Jerusalem. I want to walk through that, and I want, to, I want you to answer with me this, this morning this question. Now listen, I want you to really grab your mind around this. Ready? Here's the question. I'm going to ask you this again at the end of the sermon. Who is Jesus to you? Pastor Tim, I've been going to church all my life. I want you to lay aside all your church attendance. I want to lay, I want you to lay aside all of what you have heard about Jesus. And I want you personally, as if Jesus sat down with you over a cup of coffee across the table and said, who am I to you? 
Can you get your mind in gear this morning with me? Let's really walk through this and let's do some serious contemplation and what the Gospels lay out, what happened. Because Jesus is about to show that he is the King, the Savior, and the Messiah. And all the crowds, all the crowds are going to acclaim him in all three positions. And yet days later, they're going to move from crown him to crucify him. That shows you they did not truly know who Jesus was. That might be some in this church. No, my fear that I have more than anything is that the lights would go out. (laughs) Mario, did they go out for a reason? Okay, I have a fear that's greater than lights going out. (laughs) And honestly, it's this, is that you could sit under my preaching for years and years and never, ever, ever come to know Jesus Christ. Can I be honest with you as a pastor? There's some here that I believe do not know Jesus And you've been in this church for a long time. There's no evidence. And this last week, met with a couple, been coming here for two years, heard all these sermons like you have. And I said, if you were to stand in front of Jesus on that day when your eyes open after you die, and you say, Jesus, please let me into eternal life, What would you base your hope on? And she said, because I think I've done enough good things. I have enough good points. Listen, that's never going to get you into heaven. Parents, would you let your son die if there was another way? There is one way to the Father. It is through Jesus Christ. And it's by faith in him, not anything that we can do lest we should boast about it. It's by grace through faith. So I want to grab hold this morning of these three attributes of Jesus Christ that we're going to see as we follow him into Jerusalem. And let's start out with this one. Jesus is the king. Luke 18 brings out that he had just left Jericho, likely that morning. Now Jericho is 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So he he leaves Jericho that morning. It takes an average of of a full day, they, they would usually walk 25 miles a day back in that time in first century. So this is likely now after noon a little bit, Jesus is approaching this little village called Bethphage. And it's the month of Nisan, which is in our month, our calendar, mid, mid-March to mid-April. And it's called the month of flowers. Why? Because, well, think, because in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating spring. We're going to be celebrating the flowers coming into the air. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in central New York and winters were harsh. And when spring would start to come, there was always an excitement. There was always a newness. There was a new beginning. And the city of Jerusalem, it's bustling with activity. Why? Because it's just days away from the start of one of their greatest festivals. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now listen, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was an eight-day festival and it kicked off with what we're all familiar with, the Passover Feast. 
And it's just days away in this, this celebration, this festival. Guys, if you're 12 years old and older, men, if you're 12 years old and older, you're commanded by the law to come up to Jerusalem and to celebrate. But women and children, they're not going to leave their, their husbands and their sons behind. They're going to go with them. So they, we've got whole community groups, whole families, whole villages that are attending this festival. In fact, one Roman census showed that over two and a half million, can you think of that many people? Two and a half million people would cram into the city of Jerusalem for this festival. And they would travel and, and, and if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go up. That's why the Bible always says they went up to Jerusalem because it's high up in a mountain. And so they would sing when they would get closer to Jerusalem. They would sing the songs from Psalms 120 to 134. They'd be singing these 15 songs. They're called the Songs of Ascent. And they would sing them together in their villages and in their groups and in their families. And a lot of these fathers, they would be, they would be pulling along with them and usually carrying them, their little lambs that they were going to bring to the temple for sacrifice. These little lambs of Israel, they're small. They're not like the sheep that you see today around our area. They're small, like a small dog. And they would have brought these lambs into their homes to live among their families, feeding off the scraps from the table because they're what they would do is they would feel the pain of having to sacrifice this lamb that had become part of their family who had to die on behalf of their sins. So they're bringing these little lambs. They've affectionately become attached to these little lambs. They were to feel the weight that something has to die because of my sins. And they'd be taking them into Jerusalem, because on the following day, on the 10th of Nisan, they'd have to present these lambs to the temple. The priests would have to look over the lamb, and if there was any defect, any any birth defect or any blemish in the land, the priest would say no. But if the lamb was without defect, the priest would lay its, his hands on the head of the lamb and pronounce to tell us thy, it is finished, it is worthy of sacrifice. If your lamb was not worthy of sacrifice, you had to purchase one of their lambs, which were sold at an exorbitant price. This is why Jesus on Monday is going to clear out the temple of the money changers. This was a money-making racket. So we've got all these people who are making their way to Jerusalem. And listen, if you're in there, now listen, let's let's pretend we're there. You're on that dusty road. Spring is in the air. It's exciting. You're going with your family. Dust is everywhere from the thousands of feet trampling on the roads. And everywhere you look are brand new painted gravestones. Why? Well, they sent out cruise a month before this festival to repaint all the grave markers white and to repair the roads because if you touched accidentally or purposefully if you touched even a gravestone you were rendered unclean for seven days you would have to appear before a priest with an offering they would pronounce you clean but it was seven days it would take and you wouldn't be able to go into the temple you wouldn't be able to take your lamb for its sacrifice so they repainted all of the tombstones that no one would accidentally touch anything that was dead this is why john tells us in chapter 11 that so many of the local jews 
went up to the temple for ceremonial cleansing before the festival. It's in the midst of all this excitement with people pouring into their great city that Jesus travels that 17 miles from Jericho that morning and he arrives at a little village called Bethphage. It's just a few miles over the Mount of Olives on the other side of Jerusalem. They're almost to Jerusalem. And he sends two of his disciples and he sends them into the village to get for him a young colt of a donkey. We learn from the gospel writers that they brought back both the mother and the young colt. This young colt had never been ridden before. And in biblical times, an animal that was set apart for a special sacred purpose was one that would never be put to ordinary use. If this is going to carry the king of kings, then it would never be able to have carried any other human being before. This was a sacred animal. They brought back the mother and the colt. Just think for a moment. You've got a colt that's never been ridden before. They're about to set Jesus on that colt. You've got thousands. I'll tell you probably likely how many people there were, but they're waving palm fronds. They're cheering. They're shouting. They're laying cloaks down. This colt, which normally would have been skittish, would have been calmed by the presence of its mother. So they brought the mother. They brought the colt. This colt is going to carry Jesus. But listen, you've got to understand something about a donkey. You see, in ancient days, if a king rode to war, he rode a horse. But if he was on a mission of peace, he rode a donkey. You've got Alexander the Great, who in history and in chronicles of history, rode into battle or rode home from battle on a horse with his sword flashing in the sun. This is not the king of kings. He rides on a mission of peace. He's riding on a donkey. And the fact, the very first time you see a donkey being ridden in the Bible, guess where it is? It's Abraham. Abraham is on his way to Mount Moriah, which is the future site of the city of Jerusalem. Most believe it's right where they built the temple. He's on his way to Mount Moriah because God had told him, take your son Isaac, your only son, your son whom you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. He did not know that that God would stay his hand. He was on his way to, to obey God, not knowing that one day God would say this very same thing to his own son. And not stay the hand of his executioners. So Abraham's riding a donkey, and Isaiah is following. Isaac is following behind him on the way to Mount Moriah. That's the first time we see a donkey being ridden. And here we have Jesus, he's riding slowly on a donkey, this donkey that has been set apart for him, and he's coming into the city of Jerusalem. By the way, the city of Jerusalem, the name Jerusalem most clearly means a city of peace. He's riding into Jerusalem to the cross of sacrifice where he himself will lay down his life. And it was prophesied from Isaiah 750 years earlier, the Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. So he rides into Jerusalem slowly. So differently from the ancient Triumphant kings who arrogantly would hold their swords high and those horses behind them trailing the conquered kings and generals. 
And the, the disciples were shouting, Luke 19 says, they're shouting blessings. And the disciples shouting blessings to who? The king of kings. To the king. Who on this lowly donkey was coming to make peace for his people. Well, the disciples bring that colt back to Jesus. Another gospel writer says that they brought the donkey as well. And they took their cloaks and they put it over the back of that donkey for a saddle. Because no king ever rode bareback. And then they lifted Jesus up on on its back. And they honored and exalted the king of kings. And Jesus now begins to leave Bethphage. And he's arriving through Bethany on his way to Jerusalem. Bethany is just on the other side of the ridge of the Mount of Olives. It's where Lazarus was brought back to life. It's where Mary and Martha lived. It's a famous little town from biblical times. It's two miles from Jerusalem. Can you mark off in your mind? If you go out the front door of your home and go two miles, where would that be? For me, it's 1.6 miles from my home to this church. I go down to the bottom of the hill, and I'm just about at two miles. That's the distance he's going to ride on the back of that donkey now as he comes into Jerusalem. And in fact, Matthew 21 says that most of the crowd in verse 8 spread their cloaks on the ground as well. What they're doing is this. They're making a royal carpet for the king to ride over. But you've got to understand something even more about a cloak. See, a cloak was more like a shawl. It's more like a mantle that you wrapped around yourself to keep yourself warm. And you wore underneath that your your robe or your tunic. And it was so necessary, this cloak, it was so necessary that if you were in a lawsuit and they won your cloak, they had to give it back according to the law of God before the sun went down because it was forbidden to keep someone's cloak overnight. Often it was the only protection on those cold nights in Israel. So you've got this cloak that is a, to my knowledge, the only article of clothing that was legally commanded to be returned in a lawsuit. You've got this cloak, this precious article of clothing, they're taking off of their shoulders and they're laying down before this donkey on which the king of kings is riding. And what we're seeing in this is that they're fully yielded, they're fully surrendered to Jesus. They're saying to Jesus, you are the king It is your right to have all of my property, even all of the most precious that I own. It all is surrendered to you. And it begins to make us think, right? What is it in our lives that we will not surrender to Jesus? Would you lay down your home if Jesus asked you to? And give that money to people in need? If Jesus asked you to do that, would you do it? Would you lay down your time To serve the king. What is it that you would not be willing to surrender? Now all of a sudden we're being provoked here today. We're being provoked to ask the question, who is Jesus to me? Is he the king? And am I willing to lay everything down at his feet? They're spreading their cloaks on the road. Here's what's likely happening. Jesus walks over their cloaks. They go and pick them back up. Listen, 
they needed them to live, but they laid them down to signify, you're my king, I will surrender everything to you. You can trample my property if you so desire. This is full surrender from yielded hearts. Lord, all we have is yours, and we place ourselves at your feet. Listen, this is a sign that they were anointing Jesus king over them. It's what they did, by the way, with Jehu so many years before when he had that victorious battle and and rode back into the city. So first we see that the crowd saw Jesus as the king. Now we're going to see that the crowd saw Jesus as their savior. And John describes this growing excitement. The news that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead was spreading what like wildfire. Listen, have you ever seen God raise somebody from the dead? Maybe the closest I've come was years ago when I got a phone call here in the church. I believe it was a Tuesday morning. It was a family that had just moved into the area. They were working with Benny and Smith. They didn't even have a church to belong to. They happened to call this church and ask if a pastor would come out to the hospital because their two-year-old little boy was dying. And they they needed a pastor to pray. I said, I'll pray. So I went and met this family, these parents for the first time. Prayed for this little boy. Next thing I know, I get a phone call that said that all of a sudden, immediately, he begins to recover. The doctor's saying he's going to die. There's nothing we can do. I'm praying. He recovers. He thrives. He becomes my, my second son's best friend. They come into our church for years and years until God calls them to California. Listen, it wasn't my prayer. There's no Tim Ackley power here. This is God who decided to heal. This is God who decided to over override the doctor's professional opinion that the little boy was going to die and bring healing because this family needed to know Christ. They didn't even know Jesus. They got saved through that event. When these things happen, they spread around like wildfire and they bring fame to the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what's happening. The crowds are so large that John 12 says that there was a large crowd. Listen, that doesn't mean much to us in English, but in the Greek language in which it was written, that's called a superlative, meaning this. It's an extreme or unsurpassed level. Some estimate several hundred thousand people. You ever been in the midst of several hundred thousand people? Maybe, maybe the most I've ever been around, I think, was several hundred thousand years ago when we went to the Promise Keepers in D.C. There's people everywhere you look. You could have walked anywhere. There was just people everywhere you look. Well, you've got several hundred thousand People, there's an incredible excitement. It's all centering on this king who is walk, who is riding this donkey, this young donkey, slowly over these cloaks. And look what it says in John 12. The people took palm branches with them. Now you're there. You've got a palm branch in your hand. You leave today, you can grab one. We've got them out in the foyer. They've got palm branches in their hands. Well, you might be saying, well, I didn't bring a palm branch. You're alive then. You're seeing Jesus ride. So you run out to the fields, the gospel writers say. You grab 
grab a tree, a palm tree, and you strip a branch off a palm frond and you come back and they're waving them to Jesus and they're laying them down on the cloaks to add to this carpet. This is significant. There's something that is symbolic here. In fact, the Romans and the Greeks called the land of Israel the the land of palms. It was filled with date palms, meaning these trees were excellent for furniture. The wood was excellent for furniture, but they also grew fruit, and they would eat these dates. And the fronds were used in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I think I told you earlier that they were about to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. I might have said that. It's the Festival of Unleavened Bread that Jesus is riding to. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would, they would tie the palm frond with the myrtle frond and they would make a lulav and they would wave the lulav representing something of which I'm about to, to explain to you. Let me tell you how it was used before I tell you what it was. You see, when victorious armies returned home from battle, they had been victorious. They're riding back into their city. Crowds would span the, the highway and they would wave palm trees. They would cheer loudly. When Rome would award the champions of their games, they would award them with palm branches. The early church used the palm frond. They would lay them on the graves of people who were martyred for Christ or who died in Christ. They would even carve a palm frond into their tombstone. In all of these examples, it means the same thing. The palm frond was the symbol for victorious celebration. And so they're waving these palm fronds. They're laying them down at the feet of Jesus. And what they're saying is, you are our Savior. We are saved. You're going to rescue us. We are victoriously celebrating the King of Kings on this donkey. Let me tell you about an event that happened 180 years before this one. There was a wicked Syrian king. Some of you have heard about him. His name was Antiochus IV. He hated the Jews. He tried to kill the Jews, all of them. He tried to obliterate the Jewish religion. Listen, Hitler wasn't the first one to try this. There's been a lot of people that have tried to obliterate the Jews off the face of the planet. Doesn't that tell you who's behind this? Jesus, uh, Satan hates God's people. He hates us who are the name named in Christ and he hates the Jews. Well, Antiochus slaughtered thousands of Jews, and we would slaughter a, a Jewish man. He would take their wives and their children and sell them into slavery. He even brought a pig, which was the most unclean animal to a Jew, slaughtered the pig in the temple and forced the priests of Judaism to eat the flesh. Antiochus thought that he was the incarnation of the deity Zeus. And so he took a statue of Zeus and he set Zeus up into the most holy of holies in the temple of God. This man was wicked. He was irredeemably evil. And there was a man that God raised up. His name was Judas Maccabeus. He rose up and he delivered God's people from Antiochus IV. He purified the temple of God afterward. And the people celebrated Judas with palm branches in their hands. The palm frond was the symbol of victorious celebration. And we've got Jesus slowly making his way to Jerusalem. Remember, you're there. 
You're in this crowd of several hundred thousand and you see Jesus of which you've heard because he raised Lazarus and he's done all of these miracles. Luke 19 tells us they were telling of all the mighty deeds of Jesus and you have heard about this and it's spreading and they're laying cloaks down. You're laying your cloak down and you're waving your palm frond to him. And then the multitude begins shouting praises for all of these works that Jesus had performed. And it was, it was, by the way, tradition that when the pilgrims would come up the road to Jerusalem for these festivals, those who lived in Jerusalem would, would go out and greet them. These are their brothers and their sisters and their a family reunion. And so a crowd from Jerusalem, John 12, indicates, comes out of Jerusalem, meets with this other crowd And they're shouting, Hosanna. What's the word Hosanna mean? We've probably sung this as little children in Sunday school. It means save now. If you shout Hosanna, you're saying save now. Save us, save us, was their cry to Jesus. You see, they're recognizing Jesus as the king. And now they're recognizing Jesus as the savior. And Mark, Mark's indicating this, that half the crowd is saying this, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the other half of the crowd answers, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Don't you remember when you were a little kid? Hallelujah, 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 praise you the Lord. And you would echo it back and forth so you'd stand and sit well listen it's kind of like that there's a cacophony of reverberation all aiming at Jesus save now save now this is the king of kings this is the savior of the world and then finally we see that the crowd is recognizing Jesus as the Messiah Matthew 21 tells us that they were crying Hosanna to who? Look at the title. Look up on the screen. Son of David. That's a title for the Messiah. 2 Samuel 7. God promised to King David that there would be a son of his that will reign on an eternal throne in an eternal kingdom. And Jesus was descended from David. Listen, you got to get this because some people who tried to repute the claims of Jesus as son of David are going to throw this to you. Jesus was descended from David through adoption by Joseph through blood by Mary. Both of them, Luke 3 and Matthew 1, brings Jesus all the way back to David. He descended from David through adoption under Joseph through blood under Mary, his mother. And so they're shouting to Jesus, save us, Hosanna, save us, son of David, save us. Here's what they're saying, save us now, long-awaited Messiah. And the miracles that Jesus had performed, listen, unlike Simon of Crete, whose failed Mediterranean division killed many of his followers, unlike Simon, Jesus had backed up his claims of Messiahship through the miracles of what he had done. Over and over and over. And you're there. Remember, you're there. I'm there. There's hundreds of thousands of people shouting and demonstrating Jesus was king. Jesus is savior. Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. In fact, Matthew tells us that the, that the excitement was so great that the whole city, look what it says, was stirred. And you know, that's kind of anticlimactic. 
until you understand that the word stirred gives us our English word seismic, earthquake. Doesn't mean there was a literal metaphysical or a literal earthquake that went through Jerusalem. This is a metaphysical. This is a an excitement. It so shook the entire city. The city empties out to come out and see who this one is. That several hundred thousand are blessing and shouting and waving palm fronds to as they're making their way to Jerusalem. But here's my question again. And I asked it to you in the beginning. How did this crowd go from crown him, crown him, to crucify him, crucify him in just mere days. We're going to see a clue to this in Matthew 21 because the ones coming out of Jerusalem, they're asking the crowds coming up to Jerusalem, who is this man? Notice the response of the crowds coming up. The ones laying their cloaks down, the ones waving their palm fronds, the ones shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Here's the response. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's their answer. This is not unusual. There are hundreds and thousands that sit under preaching every week. And if Jesus Christ were to ask them himself, who am I? They're going to answer, you are a good man. I think you might have been a prophet. You certainly did amazing things. And Jesus is going to say, that's not enough. Do you believe that I'm the Lord, the Messiah, God in flesh? Do you believe that I am the Savior, the one who came to bridge that gap because all people have fallen short of the glory of God through sins? Do you believe that I am the one that gave my life and my blood has been shed to take away your sins and to give you eternal life? And they're going to say, no, they're the ones like this crowd. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That won't save anybody. It's exciting. I remember as a little boy, well actually I was in 11th grade, when we got wind from our mayor in my little town of Dorado, New York. I looked at the census report yesterday morning. 517 people live in the village of Dorado. If you bring in the farmers in the district, it's 1,500 something. And when I was in 11th grade, all of a sudden our mayor said, hey, we're going to celebrate 200 years from when Admiral DeRider from the from Holland came and established our village. And they're going to send the Dutch military marching band. And we're going to have 100,000 people come into our sleepy little village. And the whole village got itself ready. And we all were so excited about 8,000 people finally showed but I can tell you even now at 46 years old, I look back, that was one of the most exciting, hotly anticipated events that ever happened in my little town of Derider. This is exciting. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people and they're answering, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's not going to save them. Listen, it is coming to Jesus Recognizing he is the God-man, this is God who came into flesh and lived among us and perfectly kept the entire law, something that we could not ever do. 
and died a sinless death, died, and God the Father put his hands on the head of Jesus on that cross and said, there's no blemish in you, there's no defect in you, to tell us die, and Jesus hollers up to God, it is finished, just before he dies, to tell us die. That's what bankers would write on the bottom of your loan when you had made the very last payment. It's when an artist would write on the bottom of their work of art when they had finished the final brush stroke and there was nothing more needed to be done. It was in its perfect final state of completion. Jesus says, it is finished. It is enough. I've done everything you need. Now come to me in faith that I am your God and I am your Savior. And listen, unless you do that, friends... If you still think your good works and your points are going to score highly for you in God's sight, you're sadly mistaken. God sent his son to die for us so that we would not need to rely on our failing good works, which none of them are holy enough for God. See, the Jews were a people in misery. Do you know why? They were slaves. They're not slaves in Egypt anymore. They're slaves in Rome. And there was a constant reminder every time you paid your taxes. You had to pay them to Rome and they were heavy and they were exorbitant. Every time you went into the temple and you took your Roman money and you had to exchange it to shekels, Hebrew money. And there was a money changing station in the, in the courts of the temple. This is another reason Jesus cleared them out. Because they would try, they would, they would charge you a, a horrible exchange rate. But you couldn't put Roman money into the Jewish treasuries. You had to exchange it. And every time they did that, it was another reminder. We're not a people of our own. We're a people enslaved to Rome. And they see Jesus riding this donkey, the king. And they see Jesus, who is their savior, and they shout their hosannas. They see the victory that Jesus would bring and they wave their palm fronds and they wave their palm fronds to the son of David, the Messiah, their deliverer. And all of a sudden they see that God is about to free them from Rome. But that's not why Jesus came. That's not the salvation that he was riding to Jerusalem to deliver. His salvation would be given, but not by sitting on an earthly throne, but by being nailed to a cursed cross of death. He's going to purchase his people, not from Rome, but from their awful spiritual debt of sin. Friends, even John 12 tells us that the disciples at this point had no idea what was going on. They had no idea. They were caught up in this nationalistic fervor. They thought, now is the time. Peter was so ready. Now is the time that Jesus is going to lead us free from Rome. We're going to be victorious over this mighty empire. We're going to be a people that reigns over the nations of the earth. But Jesus, God, came to earth as a man to save his people from sin. That's Jesus. That's the King of Kings. That's the Savior of the world. That's the Messiah, Son of David. That's who you need to be able to answer if the question comes to you. Who is Jesus? He's my King. And I'm willing to give everything to Him. Because He set me free from sin. His grace reigns in my life, moving me to lay down everything for Him. 
And who is Jesus? He's my Savior. I had no hope. I had no hope of eternal life until the Lamb of God died in my place. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Deliverer. He's the one that brought them through the Red Sea back from Egypt. He's the one that closed the Red Sea back over. You'll never go back to who you were. You're only going forward by grace to who God is making you to be. That's deliverance. And one day Jesus is going to ride an animal again. But friends, listen, please listen. It won't be on a donkey this time. It's going to be on a horse of war. And he's not going to be holding a shiny sword up over his head. There's going to be a sword coming out of his mouth, the Bible says. That's the living and active word of God. And by his mouth, he is going to overcome all the rebellious nations. And he's going to bring all of his people. And he's going to reign for a thousand years over this earth. And the end will come in that great battle of Armageddon. And he will bring his people home. But the people that he brings home are the ones that are going to be able to answer. He's my king. He is my savior. He is my Messiah. He has delivered me from sin. You're going to be ready for that. I'm telling you, it scares me. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night going, so anybody that's hearing these sermons that has not yet gotten it, salvation's free. It's a free gift through Jesus who died on the cross, but you can't earn it or it wouldn't be called grace. You can't even add to it. So it's not grace plus your works. It's grace and that's all that it is. And you access grace through the door of faith. You open up grace through faith. I believe you. I trust you. I'm opening it up. And all of a sudden God says, there you go. I had a gift that was laying at the bottom of my cross. It had your name on it. And you by faith open it and inside salvation. And he comes and he lives inside of your heart. And he gives you power to live in a way that's pleasing to him. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to know Jesus as your king your Savior, and Messiah. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? I will not ask you to get out of your pew, but I really will ask you to be honest. Please listen to my heart. Do you know Jesus in that way? You come to Jesus trusting in nothing but the blood that he shed from that cross. Or are you here this morning hoping that your works, hoping that you're good enough, you've done enough, attended church enough, or baptized as an infant well enough, and that's going to save you. Friends, the good news is this, it won't, and there's a better way, there's the only way, and it's through Jesus. And when you put your trust in him, and you believe that he was the son of God, the king of kings, the savior of the world, and the Messiah from God, when you believe that about Jesus, his grace floods your heart, 
He saves you. He brings you out of sins. He atones for your sins. He brings you into righteousness. And he teaches you how to live in a way that's pleasing to him. That's salvation. And you will stand one day in glory. And he will say, welcome into my kingdom. Oh, child of mine, you trusted in Jesus. Would you be honest this morning? And again, I'm really not going to ask you to get out of your pew, but I will ask you, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray for you and be honest? God already knows. I see hands. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Are there any more? I've seen five hands. Are there any more going up? Do they need to go up? Just be honest, friends. Let me say this while your eyes are closed. There is no special formula of prayer for salvation. If there was, we would have it in the Bible. There isn't. It's a childlike heart that says, Jesus, save me. Save me, Hosanna. You're my king, you're my savior, you're the Messiah. Lord, save me from my sins and give me eternal life. Let me pray, and if that's where you are this morning, you can pray in your heart after me. Lord, Father, I believe you sent Jesus, your son, to die for my sins. Or Hosanna, save me. Save me from these sins. Take them away from me. Take them out of my account. Give me forgiveness. Give me your son's righteousness. Make me right, God, with you through Jesus, please. And come and live inside of me through the Spirit of God. I don't understand how that works, but Lord, live in me through the Spirit and teach me to live in a way that pleases you. Give me peace to know that I don't have to pray this prayer again. It's Final. Father, save me, please. It's in the name of Jesus I have the confidence to ask. Amen.